Well, what a weird Christmas week sermon we have today. So, you know, some years we uh, actually take time and we carve out, uh, let's say, a little sermon series and we're preaching on the birth of Christ and the incarnation. And then maybe it even leads up to the Christmas week Sunday. But the vast majority of years, we just simply preach what's coming up in the passage. We preach expositionally the vast majority of Sundays where the point of the passage is the point of the sermon and we're just walking through different books. And, uh, you know, it's funny, as um, some people like to point out, a number of years, maybe a few Sundays in a row, like Christmas week Sundays in a row, we just so happened to, tre- to preach on marriage and men's and women's roles. Like, that, was, that, that is what it was. We, we pray that we were edified by it. Well, today we look at God's judgment. Today we look at God's judgment from Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. I invite you to turn there with me now. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. And we look at the fact that whether the church faces threats from the outside or whether the church faces a threat from the inside, God protects and preserves his church. God preserves and protects his church. That is the main idea from today's passage. And uh, the book of Acts, as you guys know, as we've been talking about, is written by a man named Luke, who was a physician, uh, eventually became a Christian, and then joined Paul on his missionary journeys there. And he also wrote the Gospel of Luke. So he writes the Gospel of Luke, which is basically about Jesus' ministry here on earth, his life, his death, and up to through his resurrection. And then the book of Acts records Jesus' ministry as Christ is in heaven, after the resurrection, after Christ ascends to the right hand of the Father. Christ is still at work. What is he doing? He is at work gathering himself a people that display his glory, a people who preach his gospel and live their lives changed by the gospel. We see Christ continuing in his ministry to build his church through the apostles, the early disciples, in the power of the Spirit. And that's exactly what we see doing. So if you were to take some time later on and read Acts chapter chapters 1 to 5, which is where we are today, you'll see that that's what Christ is doing. Christ, in chapter 1, charges his disciples to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. In chapter 2, what does Christ do? He pours out a Spirit to empower the church for that task of witnessing him, for, to him to the ends of the earth. And then chapter 3, he begins to work these miracles it, through the disciples in the power of the Spirit which attests to the power of his name. So you have these miracles, and then you have these sermons explaining that Christ is the one who makes all things new and forgives sins and restores sinners to God. And you see many people turning to God, the Creator and Lord. Thousands of people are joining the church there, but not all love what's going on. Many, in fact, hate it. So the authorities that just killed Christ like a couple of months ago from Acts chapter 5, Right? They go and arrest, they imprison and interrogate the disciples. They charge them to never speak in the name of Christ ever again. But despite the threat from the outside, Christ sustains them. Upon their release from prison, they, they link up with their other Christians and they lift up their voices to pray to their sovereign God for strength to speak with boldness. And what does God do? He answers. They continue preaching and the church grows in number and they grow in Christ-like love for one another. But the church's challenges are multifaceted. Again, they don't, not, they don't only come from the outside, they come from the inside. And here we are at Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. We're going to focus on 1 to 11, but I'm actually going to read from 432. 
because it sets up the context. Look there at 432, and I'll go ahead and read this section. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And afterwards it was sold. Was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down dead, fell down at his feet, and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. The main idea, despite even threats from within, God protects and preserves his holy church. God protects and preserves his holy church. The structure of the account is very clear. You have, and this is our, these are our points, point number one, sin conceived and committed. Sin conceived and committed. And we have point number two, judgment carried out. God's judgment carried out. And then point number three, fruit born. Fruit born. Let's look at point number one, sin conceived and committed. With Ananias and Sapphira, we have the introduction of this internal threat to the church. And you see a really stark contrast there in 5.1. In 4.32 to 37, there that, that sets up the context, we see such beautiful unity. The Christians, they are drawn together by the bonds of the selfless love of Christ, actually. People like Barnabas were sacrificing of themselves, selling their properties to provide for the needs of other Christians there in the early church. Like the, the beggar who, who was paralyzed there, begging for even money for his food. And here you have the, uh, the, some people selling their property to provide for needs. Of course, this was voluntary, it was occasional, but yet they were doing that. Praise the Lord for that. It's a beautiful picture of the church. On the outside, you have threats from the government, and the authorities, the arresting, the murder of Jesus and others, soon to be. But then on the inside, here in this church, drawn together, bonded together by the love of Christ, you have peace and you have love. But, look there in 5.1, but... You see that contrast there. Enter in Ananias and Sapphira. But here they are, the contrast to Christ-like love. What do they do? What is their sin? 
In short, if Christ's love is selfless, right? If Christ's love is selfless, here we see Ananias and Sapphira, they are fueled by the, the sin of selfishness. They're fueled by the sin of selfishness. In terms of specifics, you look there in verse 1, right? This couple sold a piece of their property. They bring it to the apostles for them to distribute, but they keep back some of the money for themselves. This was together. They, they conspired together, and this was the sin committed. Now, their sin was not holding back some of their money. Okay, let's get clear. Right? Their sin was not holding back some of the money. You see there in verse 3, uh, three and four, specifically four, right? But Peter here is given the ability to discern, to know what exactly is going on. And he sees right through Ananias' spirit. And he says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land while it remains unsold, right? Here's his logic. While the house was your house, did it not remain your own? You could have done anything you wanted with it. And then after it was sold and then you received the money, it too was your own. Was it not at your disposal? You see the point there at verse number four. They could have done whatever they wanted with their property and then their money after they sold it because it was theirs to begin with legitimately so. Before they sold the house, it was theirs. After they sold the house and got the money, it was theirs too. Their sin though was the selfishness that eventually led to them pursuing their own glory in the church. Can you believe that? They tell the apostles that here we brought all of the proceeds that we got from the house sale. But in reality, that was not true. And so they, look there in verse 3, it's called, they lie to the Spirit. In verse 4, they lie to God, it is said. Note there, right, to lie to the Spirit is to lie to God. Therefore, you have the deity of the Holy Spirit. Verse number 9, you have here the testing of the Spirit of the Lord. Here you have this aspect of identity, Christ identifying so much with the church. You know, you know where uh, Paul is persecuting the Christians and the church there. Jesus turns up, turns up to Paul and he says, why are you persecuting me? Here you have that similar language here, to lie to the apostles and to lie to the Spirit. To lie to God, to test the Spirit of the Lord. Of course, the Spirit is the one who is filling the church and drawing the church together. Why would they go and do this? Why would they go and do th- this Seemingly little thing. I mean, well, think about it yourselves, guys. When was the last time you lied to make yourself look good? Why do people lie to make themselves look good? It's because they want other people to think highly of themselves. They wanted the apostles in the church to think highly of them. It reminds us of some of the Pharisees, doesn't it? As we looked at last week from Jason. We can think about those who go on about their religious practices in order to be seen by all and heard by all, right, in our loud prayers and things like this, and thought so highly of. It's like they have a love affair with their own reputation, a reputation they try so hard desperately to keep. Maybe the reputation that they, in fact, don't have but desire. And so God judges them. They both die. First Ananias, and then three hours later when Sephira comes in, she also, we're going to talk about this a little bit more. But you might ask the question, right? Maybe you're visiting with us. You know yourself not to be a Christian. You might ask the question like, what's the big deal? No harm, no foul, right? If we think about their giving, nobody got hurt. And in fact, church, the church members, their mouths, their hungry stomachs were actually fed. No harm, no foul. What's the big deal, God? What undergirds that thinking, the attitude of no harm, no foul, is the thought that 
The ends justify the means. The ends justify the means. But guys, the problem with that is, well, from the Bible, the ends never justify, or sorry, the means, the ends never justify the means. In the Old Testament, God called his people to make sacrifices. For example, let's look at some examples. God called his people to make sacrifices, to express their worship to him, their love and their gratitude to him. But God was never pleased with empty, rote acts of worship. He was never pleased with the mere motions of the thing. Which is why he says, look, what I want is your heart. I want repentance. I want love. I want your heart. Just as God had given them his own heart. And so he goes on to rebuke the people. Even though they had the forms of worship, they were clean on the outside, as Jason mentioned last time. He said, what I want is your inside. The ends never justify the means, the sinful means. And besides that, if we think that, right, if we think that, we actually show that we don't grasp what ends God is after. If you say, like, no harm, no foul, what's the big deal? Ends justify the means. We actually show here we don't understand what God is after. They, Ananias and Sapphira, are not after God's righteous ends and purposes, are they? They are not after his glory in Jesus Christ as he gathers for himself a people holy unto his name. They are after their own selfish ends, their glory over God's glory. God's goal for the church, friends, is that they be holy as he is holy, loving as he is loving. We are the redeemed people of God in Christ to display his glory living in his peace and love. We, we display that glory, preaching that gospel to the ends of the earth. In Christ's community, Christ here is the great and awesome Savior. He is loved. He is proclaimed, and the church lives its life loving and embracing and walking in that Christ-like love. Every church is to be a community where we, they, in our community, where Christ-like love rebounds from one to another, forming the strongest web of Christ-like love so all are supported in the very gospel of Jesus Christ. It is to be a community where that love rebounds and so we are filled with the Spirit of God for the glory of God. But guys, did you notice what filled, who filled Ananias and Sapphira's heart? Verse 3, look there, Satan. And this kind of gets worked out into their acts, their supposed Giving, this act of supposed sacrifice, their giving was not a sacrifice and an act of great Christ-like love that exalted Christ, where the glorious Savior is praised, where that Christ is praised who so freely loves and sacrifices himself. He so freely leaves his throne of grace into humble abasement for the salvation and security of his people. Absolutely not. Ananias and Sapphira, I mean, they give in order to selfishly get, just like the Pharisees. You can see here how this works to contrast God's true people with any who are like the Pharisees. You think about Barnabas' selfless love that we read about in in Acts chapter 4, the end there, right? That's a love that sees an opportunity, a hungry stomach, right? People are in need, and so he meets it with Christ-like love. 
He understands the gospel and then loves out of that same gospel, meeting even the very practical needs of his fellow brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. He extends the love of Christ, having received it himself. Not Ananias and Sapphira. They see genuine need of Christian and they think, ah, opportunity for self-glory. Opportunity for self. And so feeding the stomachs of poor Christians was a way to feed their own egos. As John Stott puts it this way, they wanted the credit and prestige of sacrificial generosity without the inconvenience of it. So in order to gain a reputation to which they had no right, they told a brazen lie. Their motive in giving was not to relieve the poor, but to fatten their own ego. Guys, you know that this was not the first time people rejected God's glory and opted for their own. This is the very nature of sin, isn't it? We can go all the way back to the garden, to the very first couple, our first parents, in fact. Where God had created them, He created all of us to be in a relationship with Him, to live underneath His loving care and His rule perfect relationship where there was no sin but Adam and Eve they rebelled against him they sought their own way they rejected God and opted for their own glory they wanted to do what they wanted to do and not God they did not care about God he was secondary tertiary and so they elevated themselves over God and that is our own sin if any of us have sin that's what's going on even in the smallest of sins even in the whitest, supposedly the whitest white lie one could tell. We're saying, we don't care about what God says. We do what we want to do. That's what's going on here. They give in order to selfishly get. They go after for the glory of self. Again, this is the nature of sin. It's in the nature of all of us. We are all born into sin. And then not only that, though, but we choose to sin ourselves and to go against God We've all earned for ourselves, the Bible says, just judgment, even judgment in eternal hell. If you're visiting with us, praise the Lord that even where God sees sin conceived and committed in his great love, right? You can imagine the perfect father, the perfect parent. He sees the, the problem with the kids and he says, let me solve your problem. Praise God for that. That's why the gospel of Jesus Christ is called the good news. He sees sin conceived in the heart, knows what's going to happen. He sees sin committed in real time. And he sends Christ to cover it. How awesome is that? Praise God that he is so loving and merciful and gracious, steadfast in his love, that he solves our problems that we committed. He sends his eternal son to live the life we should have. That eternal son dies on the cross, bearing the judgment that his people deserved as he bears the wrath that we deserve. And so now all who repent and believe don't have to die spiritually, eternally. Instead, we know eternal life if we repent of our sins and believe on him and say, really, we are not God. You are God. And we submit our lives to you freely, joyfully happily instead of betraying god which is what they do lying against the holy spirit lying to god testing the spirit of the lord as if god is unkind and doesn't care that he doesn't deserve all worthy and glory and honor instead no christians now believe we submit to our loving god and creator 
if you're visiting with us and, and this is new to you, friends, you can know this salvation, reconciliation with God, adoption into his family, where you know him as father, if you too repent of your sins and believe. Praise God for that. Praise God, once again, where he sees sin conceived and then committed, he sends Christ to cover sin with his very own blood. And those who repent of their sin know forgiveness and restoration with their creator. Well, Ananias Ananias and Sapphira, they come to God not as children. They come to him wanting to run away, to get away from as much as possible. They, They want to get away with as much as possible. That's what this language of testing signifies, right? This language reminds us of Old Testament Israel as they tested God. They doubted his goodness and his faithfulness, his holiness and righteousness. He's not all that anyway. And so they'd rather go back to Pharaoh. They'd rather live according to their own means and according to their own ways. Apparently with Ananias and Sapphira, God wasn't all that. God was not the Lord to give their whole entire selves to. It's apparently not very worthy. Christ's selfless love, an example in which his people are to follow, and his plan for his people to reflect his loving and holy character... It's not all that compelling. Why bother walking in those footsteps? We'll get what we want here. And of course, they, of course they think that, right? I mean, how is God ever all that so worthy if you think you are all that? Or when you want everyone else to think that you are all that? How is God ever all that? And so God judges them. This brings us to point number two. Point number two, God's judgment is carried out. And, he, and his judgment is carried out because he protects and preserves his people in Christ. His plans and his purposes. God's judgment is a reflection of how serious God is, how determined he is to build a forgiven and holy people in Christ for his name. They die. Uh, we're not exactly told how they die, but with Peter seeing into their hearts and foretelling what will happen to Sapphira, you know, we are supposed to think that and know that their deaths are seen as divine judgment. God is serious about his people and their holiness. Think about Israel's history for a moment. Israel always knew that God was serious about this. They always knew that there were serious consequences for rejecting God and pursuing one's own glory while rejecting God's. Adam and Eve, right? Their sin and their rebellion came with curses. Made from dust to dust, they will return. The the wickedness of the generation of Noah, it came along with judgment, right? Think of the sins of Israel at Exodus, in the Exodus, in their desert wanderings, right? They sinfully questioned and tested God. Think about their idolatry at the golden calf moment there. That came with judgment as a large amount of people were judged and they died. We could go on. The disobedience of King Saul, the disobedience of Israel that led to exile, Think of the teachers of the law here, and then the Pharisees. Though they crucified Jesus Christ, though they had a supposed love for God, and the forms of worship, their hearts were far from them. And we saw those woes that that Jesus held over them last week. Of course, what people needed the whole entire time from the very beginning was a new spirit and a new heart. Think about that, right? Think about God's determination, how serious he is about his plan for his people. Those whom he sets his love upon, thank God that just as determined people are to sin and to reject God, God is even more determined, more determined 
to save those he sets his love upon, to restore a people to himself, to make sure that his beloved know his forgiveness and live in his love and peace, and to make a people holy unto his name. The sin that people committed and the judgment that was to be theirs, God lays upon Christ's shoulders. The guilt of the people is then done away with in Jesus Christ, who dies the righteous one for the unrighteous. The shame of the people Christ takes upon himself as he hung on that cross. The holy one considered and received the judgment of sinners. And though the people had no heart and spirit for God, Christ then gives him his very own. And now having repented of our sin and seeing God for who he is, in receiving Christ as Savior, and then submitting to him as King and Lord, God then gathers a people for himself, holy like him, loving like Christ, reflecting his glory, his goodness, and his love to the ends of the earth while preaching that there is a good God who saves in Jesus. That is God's end. And this account here, and plenty of other ones, it simply warns us, just as it warned other folks, that it is not worth pursuing sin, folks. It is not worth pursuing a path of sin. This account here stands as a warning, as many other accounts in the Bible stand as warnings. This account here, it reminds us, as well as it reminds us in the church, as well as those outside the church, that it's not worth it pursuing sin. You know that we actually talk about this, thinking about practically here. We actually talk about these warnings at least once a month. At least. Did you know that every time we take the Lord's Supper, we remind ourselves that God calls His people to be holy. Having received the love of God, He calls us to love like God, to walk in His footsteps. He calls us to, in the Lord's Supper, right? In the Lord's Supper, when we take the Lord's Supper, He calls us to behold the love of Jesus, the extent to which He goes to save but he also warns us about the path of sin that leads to death so that we would not return to it. Thus, at the Lord's Supper, we repeat the scriptural warning from 1 Corinthians 11, chapter, or chapter 11, verse 29. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Whoever eats without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. In 1 Corinthians, you can go ahead and see there that actually people were being judged for disregarding the blood of Jesus Christ. Friends, this is a warning here. Judgment for the one who persists in rebellion. Judgment for the one who trifles with God. Another warning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. Speaking of the Israelites who rebelled against God in the Exodus, again at the golden calf experience, Paul says in verse 11, Now these things happened to them as an example as God judged them. These things happened as an example. And when they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of ages has come, therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. What is one reason why it happened? What is one reason why it was written down? It is that we might not sin against God with the same hubris and the same pride of Satan. So guys, the question naturally we should be asking is, 
How are you guys taking heed lest you fall? I hope that this Acts passage and then the Corinthians passage makes us pause for a moment, and in fact many moments, as we are warned about the danger of living as, we, as if we are ourselves are God, when there is only one God. It should be noted that while these judgments, Ananias and Sapphira, you know, they, they die, while this story serves as an example, and while it is absolutely important, these judgments were irregular. It's not like we are all dropping down dead for the sins we commit. Not all the time. Um, Jesus actually says that just because one dies, it might, it, it might not necessarily be because of sin. He gives this example in the Gospel of John. They did not die because of their sin. So we know that just because someone suffers this, goes through this experience, it might not necessarily be because of uh, one's sin. But as we think about application here, God has not only given us these kind of irregular, though important, warnings, He also gives us actually more regular means, regular warnings and means that remind us of our need to be holy as He is holy. And this comes through actually corrective church discipline, corrective church discipline. If you've not heard about what this is, let me just tell you, there's two types of church discipline that goes on in the church. One is instructive, which is like us, me teaching you now, and the other times in which people are teaching, we're instructing, and so we're making disciples as we're teaching other people about what God's Word says. There's another aspect of church discipline called corrective church discipline. So when the church and church members correct one another, where we rebuke and address sin in the process of making disciples. Corrective church discipline is actually a regular means by which we address sin in the church. By which we say, hey, there's a lot of consequences in pursuing sin. Turn away from sin. And you guys know that this is actually going on regularly. This is actually going on regularly. Every time your fellow church member rebukes you in the course of regular Christian brotherhood, that is corrective church discipline. According to Matthew chapter 18, if someone sins against you, the offended party is to go and address the person of their sin. Because we should want them to be reconciled with Jesus Christ. And then if that person refuses to repent, Jesus says, well, bring another person, bring, bring another witness. Only let as many people know as is necessary. You know, we want to be careful here. Bring another person. And if that person still doesn't repent, then bring, to it, bring another. And then eventually we are to tell it to the church if that person simply refuses to let go of sin. And that is, where, this is excommunication. This is where we remove somebody from our roles for unrepentant sin. That's important there, unrepentant sin. Someone who refuses to give up sin. So whether we are rebuking one another one-on-one or whether this is in excommunication, in it all, we say, look, there are dangerous consequences if you do not turn from your sin. In effect, the church says, in effect, the church says, look, you ought not have any confidence to your claim to Christianity because you don't love the things God loves. It's like that clear. God loves holiness. God loves righteousness. God loves justice. He loves love and mercy and all sorts of things. And you clearly, in your, in your refusal to give up sin, don't care about what God cares about. So you ought not have any confidence in your claim to Christianity. His glory, right? Do you care about Him if you don't give up sin? His character. The putting away of sin that Christ came to accomplish. His holiness, His righteousness, His judgments. If you don't care about those things, like to what degree are you a Christian here? And God's Word says that those who claim to have fellowship with the light but walk in darkness, 1 John says, 
they lie, and the truth is not in them. Jesus says you'll know a tree by its fruit. And then as we remove the person from our membership, if they refuse to give up sin, you know, you know, we're not saying that we want to cut off all communication with them. We want them to come to church because it's that point in time that they hear the word of God, the spirit goes out in power, maybe brings conviction. You guys should, you guys ought to want to talk and reach out to these folks to address their sin and, and encourage them to turn to Christ for forgiveness. Praise God. But God says, for those who refuse to give up sin, they cut themselves off from God and his people. And in the church, in in excommunication in the church, we simply uphold what God desires. We remind all that apart from Jesus, there are major consequences. And so even in the act of church discipline, where we are removing someone, cutting somebody off from the official church membership, that kind of pictures what might go on if one persists in sin, what happens with Ananias and Sapphira and all those in the Bible who are judged on account of their sin. Earthly sin is one thing, but eternal judgment is the most important thing. I thank God that this is a church that exercises church discipline as the case requires according to the word of God for the honor of Jesus Christ's name and in genuine love for sinners. That's really important to underscore too, right? Even in our rebuke for one another, it's not retribution that we're after but it's actually restoration. It's actually restoration. We want people saved. And in 1 Corinthians 5, that's what Paul says it's for. It's so that people's souls would be saved on the last day. So what we hold out is a faithful Christ who sees and understands that sin is conceived and committed, but yet he himself so faithfully, even friends, if you're struggling to repent now, he himself covers that sin. If you repent of your sins and believe, praise the Lord for that. That's a guarantee. So Christian, if you find yourself right now happy to receive rebuke, willing to receive instruction, fighting even when it's so hard to receive biblical correction, especially when it hurts, praise the Lord. Again, while excommunication happens incredibly rarely in this church and in most churches, Regular church discipline is to happen where we rebuke one another out of love for our brothers and sisters. That's to happen regularly. Even in this last week, I have been genuinely encouraged as some of you have sought to receive biblical truth, even in a rebuke. You've sought to understand yourself more in light of Scripture. You have fought to turn away from sin. And you've come to know God willing the gospel a little bit clearer. I've been encouraged by that. And friends, I hope if you, if, you, if you know that that's you, I hope you are encouraged by that. Thinking about the regular means God has given the church to address sin, do you Christians show yourself eager and willing to receive biblical rebuke? Do you have people in your life who can call you out? If yes, then great, praise God. If not, let me encourage you to find somebody who you think is godly and charge them. Give them the charge to call you out when they see you giving in to sin. Give them permission and the invitation. Give them the task to sound the alarm into your head and your ears that you might not be able to hear when you're struggling. But don't forget, of course, that you bear the most responsibility yourself. Even if you have people to call you out, 
Even if you charge them to speak up when they see you, you still can avoid and hide, right? question to ask yourself then is, are you open with others about your sin? To the point where you're volunteering information. Like you don't, you know, you turn up to your friends' meetings and you're not just waiting for them to ask questions, but you're saying, look, I need help. Here's my, here's my issues. Will you help me? This is the very thing that I'm, I'm thinking about right now. And I'm tempted to give in to sin. I'm tempted to think really poorly. Like, do you volunteer any information about how your heart is so tempted to hide and to deceive? Lie to God and the Spirit to test God as if He is not worthy and as if you are. Talk about how you are tempted even to sin so that those around you can help you keep watch over your soul and point you to a Savior who already knows all of your struggles. Guys, if you feel any sort of tension not wanting to expose yourself, guys, isn't that awesome that Christ already knows? And so therefore we can have freedom, not, 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 uh, not live in terror to confess our sins, but we have freedom running to God who already knows all of our issues. Guys, it is time to act if you don't have these people in your life. Let me encourage you to grab a godly member of the church and ask them to meet up. We all need godly friends to encourage us, Christian brothers and sisters to talk to. I mean, I remember 20 years ago, when I was uh, discouraged with my own sin that I had wrestled with a lot. And I realized that I just simply needed deeper friendships because I wasn't taking advantage of my friends. And for whatever reason, friends, you know, we weren't, we weren't as deep as we could be. So I just simply thought of somebody in the church that I was already hanging out with, somebody that I respected, somebody that I liked, somebody that I was a friend with. And I thought, how could I be more purposeful with this friend for our own mutual benefit? And I literally approached this guy. I was in my young 20s. I literally approached this guy, and I felt, it felt so strange. It's almost like the opposite of, you know, the, the worldly understanding of manhood, where you do everything on your own. You know, you're like the lone survivor all by yourself. The Marlboro Man who's all by himself, you know, independent Christian, which is not true in the, in the Bible. It doesn't exist in the Bible. And I said to him, I said, look, man, in this time, like, I really need a friend. I literally said that. I need a friend. <laughs> Will you be my friend? And we'll hang out more intentionally, talk about our sin? pray together, encourage one another. That was Danny Lou. 20 years ago plus. Over 20 years ago. If you know yourself to be hiding a sin and not confessing it for fear of what others will think. Church, this is not the time to be feeding our own egos. Certainly not the atmosphere and the stage to do this as God alone is worthy certainly not the time to be maintaining your reputation that you think you have the reputation that you want. God sees right through us. Thank God. And so we don't need to run away. We get to run to Him. Christ knows exactly what's going on. And He intends that you, friend, find peace and solace in Jesus Christ. Guys, not in perfection. No way, never in perfection, as that won't come until we see Christ face to face. But in relationship with Him, where we once were tentative children, we learn to see and trust Him that He is that loving and faithful Savior in whom we can throw ourselves at, in whom we can love as He has loved us. We're trusting in His person and work on the cross We come to know more and more the freedom from power, from the power of sin and freedom in the Spirit. 
We know forgiveness of sin. Even when we do sin, we come to know the love of God in Christ and in His people as they encourage us, as they bear with us, as they help us, even as they rebuke us. If you're new to the church and you, are, you need help finding somebody to help you, keep you accountable, let me encourage you to talk to one of the elders, talk to a mature Christian that you see around you, say, like, you know, can you help me here? And the elders can certainly try and help you out with that. Thank God for the church. Certainly not perfect. But if we know ourselves, thank God, so much better than what we used to be. So much better than the world. With us being challenged to pursue Christ, which of course involves letting go of sin, and with others encouraging us towards Christ as well, we fulfill even, if a little bit more, the mission God has given us to preach the gospel and live our lives changed by the gospel. And in conclusion, we see here, point number three, fruit is born, fruit is born. We land on the resolution of the passage and we see that despite sin in the church, Christ builds his church. Point number one, sin conceived and committed. Point number two, God's judgment carried out. Point number three, fruit is born. Though God judges Ananias and Sapphira, look at the result, verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. It's an entirely appropriate fear, not one of terror, at least in this instance, where the one sees what has happened, and they know that God is not only loving, but He is holy as well. That He is not only merciful, but that He is righteous as, as well. That He is not only God with us in love, but God over us, Creator over all, and He always has been and always will be holy. This judgment is actually really useful in that God used it to help recover this facet of God's character that the people had lost, that they had forgotten about. Remember, it was the Pharisees who had the formalities of worship, but not the heart. They were the ones who killed God's chosen servant. Though it was prophesied that he is the one who would deliver God's people, they killed him. People might, might figure that such judgment would keep everyone from going to God, but this was not the case. Look over at 5, 13, and 14. Though some did stay away, that is those who were not serious, those who really did not care because they know what would happen. They're simply counting the cost, I think. Look what happens there. More than ever. Believers were added to the Lord, multitudes, both men and women. Looking at our passage in light of the context that surrounds us, we see that God is on the move so faithfully, out of love for his people, the love that he sets, the people that he set his love upon, he accomplishes his plans by bringing them into his church through the blood of his son, where they know full and free forgiveness and are holy unto his name. Even though the authorities try and stamp out the name of Christ, and even though the people from within the church want more glory than they do for God to receive glory, God protects and preserves His church. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in light of Christ, your incarnation, your righteous life, and your death on the cross, Lord, we thank you that you deliver us from our sins. We thank you, Lord, that while we were hostile to you, the Bible says, dead in our sins and transgressions, though you saw sin in our heart, conceived and committed, you sent Christ to cover them. 
God, we ask that even right here, right now, if there are those who are holding on to their sin, we ask, Lord, that you would be working in their hearts to see that you are actually a good and loving God from the start. Certainly, yes, we know that you are holy and righteous and just. But we pray, God, that you would help us here, help us here, right here, right now, know that you say that in Christ all who repent of their sin will be saved, that all who call upon your name will know great and marvelous forgiveness in Jesus Christ, an unfathomable love, the love of God in Christ, peace with God for the redeemed. We pray, Lord, too, for those who are struggling, perhaps with guilt over the things that they have committed, the sins that they have committed, the shame, too, that they feel for any number of things, as we all, to some degree, feel this shame and know this guilt. Lord, we thank you that, Lord, your sacrifice was once and for all. The sacrifice that ended all sacrifices so that all who are in Christ and in the Spirit would know this full and free forgiveness of sins. We thank you, Lord, that your steadfast love in Christ is so much greater than our penchant for sin. We thank you that your faithfulness as you walked on this earth and died on the cross and even intercede for your people right now. Lord, that you are so much more determined. Your mercy is so much greater than our sin. God, we pray that we would know that here in Christ, having been bonded to you by your love, there is truly freedom from the tyranny and power of sin. God, we ask that you would be binding our own hearts together in love, that we would be a people holy unto your name. And this would not cause us and lead us to any sort of licentious living as if you don't care, but in fact it would lead us all the more to holy living because we know your love and because we want to walk in your love. With these warnings in place from these passages, God, we pray that we would not neglect the fact that you are serious about your character and your church. In your name we pray, amen.